You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. It is my job to stick the fork in and see if we're done. So let's stand together and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Three verses. And therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Let's pray together. Father, these three verses that we've read, you know very well, are going to outlive all of the heavens and the earth, all of human history. And we ask that you would take the eternal truths that are found here, right from your throne, that you would impart them to us today into our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength, and into the calling that you have called each one of us to, Lord. May these verses have their needed impact upon each of our lives as you so desire as our Heavenly Father. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In these verses, the writer of the book of Hebrews continues to liken the Christian life to a race, and most specifically to running a long-distance foot race. And just as if you've ever been in track and field or ever run cross-country and had a coach involved in all of that, well, a coach that's involved in training athletes for a physical race, uh, they will always uh, impart to them what is necessary for them to be uh, physically and emotionally and mentally prepared in order to be successful and what they're being trained to do. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews takes, and he tells us here in these verses how to finish the spiritual race that each of us has been called to so that we can one day, when we see Jesus face to face, and each of us will, be able to hear from his very mouth. It'll be something, won't it, to hear that well done our good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And the writer tells us that 
uh, these Hebrew Christians, and he tells us as well that first we need to come under the encouraging influence of the saints that have run the race before us. Now, we have a 2,000-year time window that these Hebrew Christians did not have. So he goes to the Old Testament to bring out some heroes of the faith. And he says to them, as we saw in my last session, that to come under the influence, the encouraging influence of those who have run before us, run well and run successfully. He then also, in these verses here, he speaks, about, speaks to them, secondly, of the fact that they need to lay aside every sin and every weight that so easily ensnares us in life. And then for our purposes, third, this morning, uh, he addressed the need for endurance in our spiritual race. You notice what he says at the end of verse uh, 1. He said, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so what is the race set before each one of us? It is God's plan for our lives, which includes our personal relationship with him, being faithful to that, being obedient to that, but then also being faithful to his call upon our lives into Christian service and into ministry. He tells us here that we are to run with endurance, and the word endurance is hupomone. It means steadfast endurance, steadfast perseverance, and it's the idea of you just keep on going. And it's just one foot in front of the other uh, over the long haul of things, taking the next step, and no race can ever be finished without endurance. Now, one of the great threats to finishing our race is weariness and discouragement. And so that's why he makes mention of them in verse 3. He says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now, in every long-distance foot race, there comes that point when the romance and the excitement of starting the race has worn off, and yet the excitement of finishing the race is uh, quite a ways away. (laughs) And so it's that part of the race where it's just you. And most races are very exciting at the beginning, and then they're very exciting at the end. And then you've got that middle section (laughs) of things But at the beginning and the end of a race, that's where the crowds are, and that's where everybody's buzzing with excitement. And and then you've got that race that lands in between where it's just you, and it's just one foot in front of the other in order to get uh, to that finish line. Now, in the old days, it's less true now, but in the old days, we didn't have um, uh, four, six, eight... uh, 24-hour-a-day sports channels. So I'm not complaining about it, by the way. But in the old days, things were pretty limited. You had Wide World of Sports on once a week, and I forget how long it ran, an hour or something like that. So they didn't really have the luxury of time. 
So when they would show a long race, a marathon, or they would show a long race related to the Olympics or some kind of a track meet, in order to consolidate the time, because they'd show you several different sporting events in the course of that hour, they would simply show you the beginning of the race and then show you the end of the race. And uh, that, because the coverage was that way, uh, if you didn't know any better, you would be left with the impression that the whole race was the start and the finish, that running a race always means that it's lined by large, excited crowds encouraging us uh, all of the way. But the truth is that most races are very, very exciting and glorious in the beginning and, uh, and at the end of the race, but those are only very small, small parts of the race. Most of long-distance running is just a hot, sweaty, difficult, painful experience. And you've got the bulging veins, the lungs are burning for air, uh, the pain is beginning to set in in one spot, and then you begin to accommodate for that, and it starts to set in in another spot, and it's just accommodation all the way to the end of the race. And this is very, very true of our Christian service as well. Most of it isn't terribly uh, glamorous, but it's just like a race. It's hot, it's dirty, it's sweaty, and it's all often very, very uh, painful. And the writer exhorts us that we're not to quit under the weight of this difficulty and to realize this is normal. And sometimes it's just good to hear you're normal, isn't it? <laughs> you're not crazy. You're not an oddball. This is not unusual. And uh, it's not to minimize the difficulty in any way. But the only thing that's harder than being in that middle part of the race and having it be difficult is then to be, believe the lie that somehow uh, this is odd. This doesn't happen to everybody else, and this is just happening to me. Well, very thankfully, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there, but because he is an outstanding coach in our spiritual race, he goes on to give us uh, some vital keys to running the spiritual race that we're in, with endurance. So it's one thing to say to run with endurance and say, can I have a little bit of elaboration on that? Everyone who wants to excel in whatever they're doing wants more elaboration. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit gives us in this passage. So he gives us some keys to running the race with endurance. And he tells us of this in verse 2. He said, number one, we are to be looking unto Jesus. That is, we're to keep our eyes and our focus on him. Now, when a long-distance runner settles into that long, often painful, difficult uh, part of the run that's between the start and the finish, they will typically set their eyes on something in the distance, in the horizon. That's what they will do physically to themselves. And they aren't looking at every crack, you know, in the sidewalk or on the street. They don't just even look a block. They're looking a long distance away. They're going to get into a little bit of a zone. So that's what they do with their their eyes on things. And then typically they'll also set their minds on some source of joy in their life. And so sometimes if you've, uh, you're running like that, you will retrace your steps on a Hawaiian vacation. 
and, uh, or if you've ever been to Israel, you're on a, running a race like that, and you might work your way through. Okay, day one, we went to Caesarea. Day, then we went over to the, uh, the aqueduct, and then we went to Mount Carmel, and then we went to uh, the uh, Valley of Armageddon there, Megiddo, and then through Nazareth and on to Tiberias and so forth through the whole trip. Uh, and, and just reliving that to get your mind someplace that's pleasant for you and is uh, joyful. And sometimes you'll put your mind on something that you're going to eat or you're going to drink as soon as you're done doing this to yourself. And, uh, but you're always in a race. You have to discipline your thinking. You have to do it because if you're in a truly in an acad- in a, uh, athletic environment. Um, You can do this on your own if you're just out running for some fun. But I mean, if you're in a truly serious athletic environment in which you're wanting to excel, you don't think about your bills. You don't think about uh, the problems you're having with your children or in the marriage or uh, the catastrophe of life on planet Earth all around you, because that will so tax you physically that it will begin to impact you in a negatively related to the race. So runners are very disciplined about where they put their eyes and very disciplined about where they put their mind, where they put um, uh, their, their focus. And so we're going to He tells us here in terms of our spiritual race, we're going to put our focus on something, and there's no more encouraging place to put our focus than upon Jesus because no one is more for you than he is. You don't have have uh, one person in this world, no matter how they're your father or whatever role or you've known them for 30 years, as wonderful as they are in that relationship, no one is more for you in your calling than Jesus himself uh, is. And you don't have a more committed fan in the race that you're running spiritually than you have in him. And I hope that you realize that. Now, the Greek word for our English word, looking, is an interesting one. It means to look intently. It carries the idea of staring with eyes wide open. Think of Marty Feldman's eyes uh, on that, if that helps you a little bit. And, and so it means to look intently. That is, and the idea is that we're never to take our spiritual eyes off of him. One translation has it, our eyes fixed on Jesus. The same Greek word that's translated uh, for looking in the English here, it also carries with it the idea of uh, to look away from one thing so as to see another. So here you have the awareness that there are many, many other things competing for my attention in the Christian life, just as there's a lot of things that are competing for the attention of a runner in a long-distance Race. Uh, he has. He can begin to think about his body, what it's doing. He can begin to think about other contestants who are in the race uh, with him. The temperature, his surroundings, the terrain. All of these things can begin to enter into his mind, and the need to deliberately 
be looking away from those things in order to keep my eyes upon Jesus, in order to keep him as the single great focus in my life, and in order to successfully run and finish our spiritual race, it's going to mean a lot of looking away from a lot of things that would discourage us in our race. So there's certain things that we just simply cannot focus on and run with endurance. And the single greatest thing that we cannot focus on is ourselves. Because there's no single greater discouragement (laughs) to you and your ministry than knowing what you aren't and the light of what God has called you to do. I remember Gail Irwin saying, the only thing that makes me doubt about God is his choice of me. We all understand (laughs) something about that, don't we? So I hear you're you're wise, Lord, but then you called me, so now I've got my doubts. (laughs) And a self-focus, they're really going to take us out of the race. And so we have to make sure we keep our eyes off of ourselves. And, of course, we think about ourselves most of the time. Nobody else is, so somebody's got to do it. But that's just naturally where we gravitate. And with all seriousness, though, that, that is something that we have to learn to discipline ourselves away from in this calling in order to keep our eyes uh, on the Lord and, uh, because we're so acutely aware of our weaknesses and our failures, and it can drive us uh, out. We aren't to set our focus on other people. Uh, that's, uh, that can be equally discouraging, and that's kind of our second great temptation so often in a calling as a pastor, and not to set our focus on our circumstances or upon the temptations of the world. All of these things will discourage us in our race, and, and if they don't drive us out of the race, they will sap out of us uh, resources and vitality that we cannot afford uh, to lose. There's an old saying, it's, it's as silly as can be, but I like silly if it makes the point. The old saying is this, look at others and be distressed, look at yourself and be depressed, look at God and you'll be blessed. And there's a lot of truth to that, and the Lord will bring that to my remembrance every once in a while. So we're never to take our spiritual eyes off of him, looking unto Jesus. In some respects, I think that the ministry environment that we're in right now is highly toxic. I don't think all of it is. I think a lot of wonderful things are happening in the body of Christ, in our country, around the world, in every age group, in every, 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 every. It's just happening. But there are elements of it that are toxic, that the voices are so loud and the drums are beating so loud that our attention gets drawn to it. Every once in a while, I kind of live in a hole, and it's called Modesto, California. Not that the city is a hole, but it's an isolated place. I'm not in a major kind of happening you know, people don't vacation in Modesto. It's not a destination location. And um, so every once in a while, though, I'll pop my head up out of the hole and I'll try and get a feel for what's going on all around me. Because I pretty much spend my time going on about, you know, my business and trying to keep up with everything that's involved in 
uh, pastoring the church that I pastor. And uh, a little while more recently here, I've kind of popped my head up out of the hole, and I said, I want to just get a little bit of a feel for what's going on and who's getting all of the attention and what are the models that are being foisted upon people today. And some of these folks are very, very good, so I'm not talking about the whole, all of it, but there's a lot of opinions out there. And I hear a lot of I think and I believe and I do and this is how we and this and this and this and this. And most often it's being spoken by people who are pastors who are in the 1% of the calling. So they have giftings that are just like off the graph. So they're able to pastor, they're able to be an evangelist, they're able to be a missionary, they're able to leap tall buildings at a same, same bound, they're able to stop runaway locomotives, and that's all before lunch. And then they begin to give me all of their opinions on what a church should be, and then they never quote a verse related to it, but I'm not in that 1%. I don't have that kind of a gifting. I don't have that kind of charisma or personality or smarts or uh, edginess or any of it. And far from, I think, from being a great encouragement to many in the ministry, it's a great discouragement because we know we can never be that. We can never do that. That's not how we're made. And I just want to say, be careful of that. I was watching something as a part of my research, not deep research, please. But I was listening to a thing on one of the latest gurus related to teaching that really has um, the ear of a lot of young guys. And he's laying this whole thing out on teaching, teaching an hour long on teaching. And I went through a half hour of what he was saying there. And it was all about how it worked for him. And I'm glad it works for him that way. But it doesn't work that way for me. And there was never a single verse was given from the Bible in the entire 30 minutes of it that I listened to, and then I just cut out. I just couldn't, couldn't take it because of what he was saying on there. If I had started in the ministry 30 years ago, or let me put it this way, if the ministry environment... 30 years ago was what it was today, I don't think I'd be pastoring. It was simpler then. And it was about Jesus having a relationship with him, praying, giving a stab at being a pastor and trying to teach the Word of God. And then you had the room to become whatever God was going to make you as an expression of his son. And so be careful where your eyes go. There's a lot of places that can discourage, but our eyes on Jesus will never discourage us. Let me say one other thing, too. 
don't set your eyes on the name Calvary Chapel or on Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is, we say it a lot now, but it is in my DNA. I get it. And it is, I am a kindred spirit. It isn't a thing of learning and looking and this and that. I got it right away. I knew where God wanted me to be. But Calvary Chapel has become what it has become because there were men who were looking unto Jesus. And if at some point in time we begin to look unto Calvary Chapel more than we look unto Jesus, then there's no future in it. So you know what I'm saying. I'm not putting Calvary Chapel down at all. This is a fabulous thing. This is my home. You are my brothers. But, and there's times where, and this conference is one of them, where this is a major period of transition. So we do have to look at things maybe a little more closely, talk about the movement more than we might have in the past or might need to in the future. I get all of that. But don't spend the next six weeks or six months or six years of your life with your focus on Calvary Chapel. If we are looking unto Jesus as the author and finish of our faith, then Calvary Chapel is going to be exactly what it needs to be, and it's going to be fine. So we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. There's a lot of subtle things that take our primary focus off of the Lord. The second key to running our spiritual race with endurance is being confident in the fact that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is, the, he is the author, which is the idea is that he's the originator of our faith. What is an author except someone who originates something? And so he has started us in this race, and he will make sure, because he is also the finisher, that we finish the race that he has entered us into. Don't forget that. He's the one that paid the fee, and he got us into this race, and and we're right where we're supposed to be. And so he is both the author and the finisher of our faith, and that knowledge that he is going to uh, make sure that we finish the race that he's called us to, we need to hear it because it instills confidence in us. And he will bring our faith to a successful completion being confident of this very thing, Paul said, that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Jude wrote and said, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's in our future. Jesus is going to make sure of it. And so if we want to finish, Jesus is going to make sure that we do finish. This makes Jesus different from the great cloud of witnesses. The great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, they inspire us, but they cannot personally strengthen us. Only Jesus can strengthen us, and he does. And when the writer tells us he is the author and the finisher of our faith, that's intended to fill us with a unspeakable confidence in the fact that we're going to be able to finish this race no matter what the obstacle is. There's an illustration. There's a, um, 
few illustrations that I really, really like that impact me. And one of them is this. It's a story about uh, Frederick the Great. He sent a messenger to one of his generals saying, I'm sending you against the enemy with 60,000 men. And when the troops were counted, they numbered only 50,000. And the general sent a letter of protest to Frederick the Great and complained. He insisted there had to be a mistake. Frederick the Great said, no, there's no mistake. I counted you for 10,000 men. (laughs) What do we count Jesus for in this race? Do we see ourselves alone in this race? We're not alone in this race. We're in this race with him. And it is the absolute designed to produce absolute confidence in us that we are going to run well and we are going to finish well. The third key to running our race, spiritual race with endurance, is to make what was Jesus' source of joy during his ministry to be our source of joy as well. And we notice what did Jesus set his eyes on? during his incarnation and his public ministry. Well, we're told in verse 2, the joy that was set before him. And any serious athlete that is interested in excelling in any particular field, they study the keys to success of an athlete. A great basketball player would obviously want to have studied Michael Jordan But not just what he could do on the court, not just what he was physically, but someone who really wanted to become great would go beyond that and say, what does he think at this point in the game? Um, How does he handle himself in this situation? When he's fouled hard in the playoffs and sent to the ground, how does he respond to it? It's all revealing something about the inside of of the greatness of the athlete. And so in the same way, uh, we're given tremendous insight here into the innards, so to speak, of Jesus. And he endured the cross, we're told, despising the shame. And so Jesus is the greatest example of all concerning staying faithful to the Father's calling in the face of all opposition The greatest opposition anyone's ever faced in their race was the opposition that Jesus faced. And then doing that at whatever the cost. And yet, Jesus, despite all that he faced, he finished. How did he finish? What was going on inside of him? Why did he finish the way that he finished? He finished because for the joy that was set before him. He did so for the joy that was set before him, that is, the joy of eternity. An eternity of being able to enjoy the fact and knowing that he was faithful to the Father's calling upon his life. And you notice that in verse 2. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the joy of accomplishing that and then enjoying the blessings of that accomplishment, it outweighed any and all difficulty that he faced. And the contemplation of one day being in heaven 
and then experiencing the eternal joy of having faithfully fulfilled what God has called us to is to be a strong and encouraging motivation to us as well. I hope you remember there's a heaven on the other side of this life. There's a heaven, there's a reward at the end of this calling that God has uh, called us to. That whole theme of eternity and uh, dominates all of chapter 11, really, in the early part here of chapter 12. And it's a key to living the life of faith. Concerning Abraham, we're told that he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. He lived in the context of eternity. Yes, he knew what he was needing to do in the day in and day out of life here within the realm of time. But he lived that life dominated by heaven, dominated by eternity. Concerning Moses, we're told that for by faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to uh, enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So what caused him not only to walk away from the treasures of Egypt, but then into the affliction with God's people was the eternal reward of following God, for he looked to the reward I had the pleasure of seeing Warren Wiersbe teach just one time in person. It was in Southern California many years ago. And he taught a passage. He taught one of the sessions, I think, in part on heaven. And he declared concerning heaven that for the Christian, it isn't just a destination, but it's a motivation in this life. And so as we sit here in our race... Heaven is to be more than just a destination in our heart. It's to be a motivation in, in our service as well. The joy of heaven was a very strong motivation for the Apostle Paul. He wrote to Timothy in his final epistle to him. He said, for, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then here it is. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that finally that he speaks there in that passage, it reveals about the Apostle Paul part of what kept him in going and drove him during those difficult years. It was eternity, the reward of eternity. And this life is going to be past, but our faithfulness to the Lord in it is going to produce a reward and a legacy that will go on forever and ever and ever. That's amazing. You know, one of the interesting things about a race, when you run it, is what happens the instant you cross the finish line. The instant you cross the finish line, you forget all about 
all of the pain you've been through. And immediately you become flushed with the greatest reward of all, that sense of having accomplished something great, having accomplished something I never thought I could do. And one day when we pass that line and enter into heaven, all of this will be no memory at all. But what will last into the next life will be that sense of having given our all to the Father's will in this life and to realize God made it possible for me to be able to do that in this life and then to enjoy the afterglow of that for an eternity that will go on and on and on and on forever. So let me close with a couple of points. We're to run this race with endurance, which means we're never ever to give any serious thought to quitting this race that he's called us to, no matter what the obstacles are or what the difficulties are. It just simply is not an option for us. We are to keep on going because no one can finish a race by quitting. Second, our coach, the Holy Spirit, gives us here in this passage three great needed keys to endurance. Number one, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Number two, we are to run confident that he has called us into this race and he will make sure that we finish it. And then number three, we need to make the source of his joy the source of our joy as well. The eternal, eternal joy of heaven, enjoying the sense of accomplishment for having been faithful to God in this life. Whenever I think about um, endurance or I think about hoopamony, um, my mind goes back uh, to my childhood. And it goes back to my junior high years when I was in the uh, eighth grade at a school that was called Ridgeview Junior High School. It was a very large junior high school that I was a part of, and I was a part of the track team at Ridgeview Junior High School. And it was there on that track team that I first learned not only the importance of endurance to finish a race, but even more important than that, where I learned the power of endurance in a single person to really inspire others. It was a large school, a large track team, and I sat through all of the meets that went on in the spring of that year, and I watched scores of people jump and run and throw and do all of these things that you do at a track meet. If you were to ask me today if I could remember any of those races or those jumps or those throws now, I can't. I can't even tell you who else was on the team. There's one man who's etched in my memory forever, and his name was Greg. And he was in my German class and a brilliant student, absolutely a brilliant student. 
He wore glasses that were so thick, and the black frames, sometimes now they're cool back, they were not cool back then, (laughs) big, big black framed uh, glasses. And he was a little bit heavy on the heavy side, and his posture was kind of stooped, kind of bookworm. It was already having its work on him, and he wore wingtips. And when he walked through the hallways, it was like Godzilla was coming. It was just thud, 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 thud. You could tell when Greg was coming. And Greg ran the mile for Ridgewood Junior High School four times around the track. And in every race, the same thing happened. He would end up being lapped by every other runner uh, running the mile with him. In other words, they finished their race. They're sitting on the side of the track, and they're putting their sweats on when Greg would cross the line and begin his final lap. And... Here he comes around. I can picture to this day. He hits the line to finish his second lap. This guy was so white, he was pink. And his face is as red as can be, and he's sweating, and his chest is heaving, and he's got this bandana around his, his head and all, and he's, and, and he's starting to begin that last lap, and he ran, and he only did have that one gear. It was just compound low, just one step in front of, of the other. And I would sit up in the stands that would be watching and, of course, the cruelty of the age, you know. Um, all of the kids in the stands would just be m- making so much, uh, you know, fun of him. Here, this chubby, bespeckled uh, guy who's plodding his way around the track all alone. What an idiot, you know. He's, everyone else has got their sweats on and moved to their next event and, and, and all. And, and so this was kind of the vibe that was going on because he'd been lapped by everyone else. The funny thing would happen, he would turn the corner of the first corner, first fourth of that final lap, and all the laughing and all the jeering would begin to just settle, suddenly begin to just settle down, start to die down. And then between that, that quarter point and the halfway point of that lap, a silence would come over the whole stands. And it would hit everybody. It was supernatural. It would hit everybody all at the same time, adults and kids alike. This kid is going to finish this race. And as he would, every step that he would take toward the finish line, the cheers and the clapping and all would grow louder and louder and louder and louder. And when he finished the, crossed the finish line, everything that anybody had in their hands was thrown up into the air in celebration. And the one-mile race was the final race of our track meets. And everybody would walk away from those track meets, and nobody talked about, nobody even remembered who won the one-mile race. And nobody talked about any of the other athletes during that track meet. Everybody would walk away talking about Greg's commitment to finish his 
race, inspired by that commitment. Maybe years later, I'd become a Christian and, and actually a pastor before I would remember all of that. And I would put myself and think to myself, I think, thought to myself, what must he have been thinking? What went on in his mind as he plodded around that track? And maybe he's thinking to himself, oh, my, why am I doing this week in and week out? I go out and I make a fool of myself. Anybody know anything about that? <laughs> you know, <Ms. laughs> All those things that we think about when we're discouraged in our race. But I'll tell you something. He inspired us more than all of the superbly gifted athletes that made up that team. And sometimes we think, and this is such a dominant vibe right now, and a dangerous one. And sometimes we think that the power of our Christian witness or the greatness of our impact for God will come out of being some kind of a dynamic this or a dynamic that about our lives when the most powerful witness of our lives is when people simply see us continue in our race and finish it when everyone knows we are not the most talented or the most gifted or the most mighty or the most noble or when they see us continue to run and we continue to serve him when everyone else knows that for us to continue to do that is not an easy thing to do. And so maybe today you feel like a plotter and you're tempted to quit at times because of that. Don't you ever do that. You have no idea how many people are quietly watching you and inspired by your commitment to run your race with endurance. It is God's job to make much of our lives, and he will be faithful to do that. But oftentimes, we will never know how he's doing that and how much he's doing that until we cross our finish line and we are in heaven. I remember having a conversation with Gail Irwin many years ago, and he made the comment, he said, he said, you know, the kingdom of God has always moved forward on the giving of the poor, not the rich. I thought, that's interesting, and that's, that's the truth. I'll tell you, after all these years in ministry, I'm convinced that overwhelmingly the kingdom of God is advanced based upon the faithfulness of pastors who are numerically smaller churches. There are no insignificant churches. There are no large churches. There are no small churches. There are faithful churches. When a church has a love for God, teaches his word, has a love for people, is led by the Holy Spirit, that's a significant church. The church culture today undervalues it. And it undervalues you. That's why they're always trying to tell you how to get out of 
the place that you're in with the firm conviction that you are in a terrible place. So the culture undervalues the pastor and that kind of a church. But God never undervalues that work. And it's important that you don't either. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for a wonderful time and your word and worshiping you and prayer and fellowship here. Thank you for meeting with us. And I pray now specifically for this final message that it would, the points that your Holy Spirit have put in these three verses, that they would now become, as we prayed, a permanent part of our perspective and how we view ourselves, your call, you, the church that you've called us to serve, Lord. The world is all crazy around us. The church culture is so many voices. It's a tower of Babel. And I just pray that you use this simple, quiet time in this passage here this morning to protect each one of us from it. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.